Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore a mysterious and unexplained real-life account of a haunting in a Welsh beauty spot that baffled investigators at the time and continues to baffle investigators today. But maybe, after listening to all of the details, you, dear listener, can help solve the mystery. And so, to begin at the beginning. And these events take place in what is described as the town of St. Govans in Pembrokeshire. And Govans is spelt in the anglicised way, which is G-O-V-A-N, the Welsh language version being G-O-F-A-N. And when they say the town of St. Govans, I am assuming they mean the town of Boshaston, which is next to all the St. Govan landmarks, St. Govan's Head and St. Govan's Chapel, this wonderful folklore-filled attraction perched on the cliffs overlooking the sea. But in the original text, it is referred to as the town of St. Govan's, so I will use the original text just in case I've got my geography mixed up. But we are certainly in Pembrokeshire, and it was there in the first half of the 20th century, so roughly some 100 years ago, that the inhabitants of this little town were much agitated by the pranks of a most inconsequent and noisy ghost. The worst kind of ghost. It was most inconsequent and noisy. And they were much agitated by this one in particular because it targeted the most inappropriate of houses to prank it would appear. Because this ghost did not target the local gothic church or the local run-down battered house on the corner. Rather, it selected the abode of one of the quietest and most respected families in the place for the scene of what are described as its exploits. A quiet, respectable family that, thanks to the appearance of this ghost, thanks to its exploits, were no longer seen as being quiet and respectable. And this terrifying haunting, as we'll discover as the episode goes on, not only aroused excitement in that neighbourhood, but for a few days, attracted considerable attention from the daily press. So these events put a small, unassuming part of Pembrokeshire in the national spotlight. And I've said this before on this podcast, I'm sure I will say it again, but without this press coverage, there is a very good chance that this particular haunting and many other hauntings would have been lost to time. So it's a very good thing that they did get involved. But you do, however, have to bear in mind that some of these reports might come with a certain bias. Some newspapers, for example, might sensationalise the events just to get the headlines. Like evil spirit terrorises community, that kind of headline might need to be taken with a pinch of salt. And at the other end of the scale, you might get the press people who just want to dismiss such nonsense as they see it. They might even belittle those involved. So it's worth bearing that in mind. But overall, I think we have to thank the journalists for recording these accounts. And no, I'm not just saying that as a journalist myself. Now, back to this case. And as grateful as I am to these journalists for recording these events, they were not, it would seem, clever enough to solve the case. And neither were the people of Pembrokeshire who looked into it. And to quote... 
In spite of close investigation, no real solution of the mystery was ever arrived at, although our narrator does point out that while no explanation was found, the larger section of the community were very sceptical about the events, and at length they dismissed the matter as a case of trickery in some shape or other. So they dismissed the affair as trickery, and this is something our narrator was very unhappy about, because they said, to quote, this explanation, in the light of many reliable witnesses' evidence, was quite inadmissible to thoughtful minds. The idea that it was trickery was quite inadmissible to thoughtful minds. So what our narrator is telling us is at the time, while most people were sceptical and they blamed things like trickery, nevertheless, they could not explain what this trickery was. Whereas those with more thoughtful minds, like the listeners of this podcast, I like to think, people with thoughtful minds that put a bit more effort into it, they would be more open-minded and they might come up with other suggestions. Of course, that's not to say you would believe it. You might still very well be sceptical. But nevertheless, to dismiss it as trickery without tackling the evidence first, as far as the narrator of these events is concerned, that would be the wrong thing to do because things just don't add up. And I'm sure at this point you are thinking, well, what is this evidence? Because it wasn't just one person who thought they saw or heard something, or two people, but, to quote, many reliable witnesses seemed to suggest it was not trickery, but paranormal and the first report to cover the events published in a local paper went like this. Great excitement has been caused at St. Govan's during the past week, owing to the alleged appearance in the principal street of a ghost. It has taken its abode, so the story goes, in the house of Mr. Moore, from which, in the early hours of Sunday morning, loud metallic clanks were to be heard. Which, you might be thinking, sounds like good old-fashioned poltergeist activity. Metallic clanks could be heard in the house of Mr. Moore. And as a result, those with an interest in such things decided to investigate and to continue. A Mr. A. B. Rose and others at once proceeded to investigate, and it was found that a bed in one of the rooms was rocking violently and in doing so came in contact with the wall causing the sounds which had been heard. So they discovered a bed rocking violently against the wall and on the one hand this was good news because they'd solved the puzzle of the metallic clanking sound. It was being caused by this bed rocking violently against the wall. On the other hand, the bad news is they'd discovered an even bigger problem. They'd discovered a bed rocking violently against the wall, seemingly by itself. This had now moved beyond simply being some strange paranormal sounds, and further investigations failed to reveal the cause of the rocking. The bed was in contact with nothing but the floor, and nothing could be found to indicate in any way that the rocking was caused by anything natural. So, while it's a bit vague on details, I don't know exactly how they checked it. I assume they did a little bit more than just lifting up the covers to make sure there was no one hiding under the bed and rocking it or anything. But they were convinced there was nothing natural causing it. And, as regular listeners will know, if there's nothing natural causing it, well... Could it be something supernatural 
causing it. Well, that certainly seems to be the suggestion. And it is curious, the report says, that the phenomenon always takes place at about seven in the morning and at the same hour in the evening. So this violent metallic banging and clanging has regular hours. It likes seven in the morning, it likes seven in the evening, and it has certainly been continuing for several days. It's a bit difficult to pinpoint exactly how many days, but we are told it started on Sunday on the Lord's Day. It must have gone on for a few more days for them to notice it was seven each day. But however many days it went on for, several attempts had been made to solve the mystery. But up to now, up to the time of writing this particular report I'm quoting from, up to now, nothing has been deduced from the observations made. The street opposite the house has been thronged all day, and the aid of the police has had to be called to remove the crowd of sightseers. And this is, again, something I've spoken about and written about many a time now, where in, in the good old days, certainly in the Victorian times going into the Edwardian times, if a house was supposedly haunted, it would attract many people, potentially hundreds of people, to gather outside. It would be like a festival atmosphere out there, people standing around all through the night, hoping to catch a glimpse of the ghost. What exactly they were hoping to see, I'm not sure. Maybe a figure in a white sheet walking past a window and waving at them. But these were the days before the invention of the internet. These were the days before the invention of Betamax videotapes even. So in that respect, you can understand why people would need some kind of distraction. And if somebody told you that there was potentially evidence of life after death in the quiet, unassuming house down the road, then you're going to get off your backside and go and have a look. And in fairness, as somebody who has been on many a ghost hunt myself, wasted hours after hour after hour sitting around in the dark, shivering, drinking coffee, waiting for something to happen, even after the invention of the internet and Betamax videotapes, who am I to judge the good people of Edwardian Wales? And while I joked just then about them expecting to see a ghost maybe walking past a window and giving them a wave, while they didn't see such phenomena, they did hear phenomena. They did hear something because those metallic sounds or metallic clanking, as it's referred to, were so loud that it could be heard many yards away from the house down the street. So they were, those people who'd gathered outside, they were in some way experiencing the phenomena, even if they weren't granted access into the house, and even if they didn't see a full-bodied apparition floating by. And to continue, and though the noises and disturbance continued each morning for several days, afterwards they were never again as loud and insistent as on that Sunday. So the bed continued violently banging, but slightly less violently than its peak on the Sunday. And various persons, we are told, bent on investigation of a more or less scientific order, soon discovered that by establishing a code of wrappings, they could communicate with the disturbing agent. And accordingly, each morning, visitors arriving at the unconventional hour of 6.30 proceeded to the room containing the mysterious bedstead, and by means of taps, held long conversations with the ghost. 
held long conversations with the ghost. And there's quite a lot going on in that relatively short sentence there, I think. There's quite a lot to unpack. And I think it shows us in the world of ghost hunting how much some things have changed and how much others have stayed the same. The obvious one, I think, is that the method of communication they are using is one that would be very familiar to many people today who have watched a single episode of a ghost hunting TV show. This idea of setting up a system of taps or knocks to communicate with, one for yes, two for no, whatever it might be, but communicating with the other side seemingly using a system of taps. Where things differ, however, is that this is described as the scientific technique, or as they put it in the original report, those bent on the scientific order. And of course, nowadays, this form of communication would be considered by some to be the total opposite of scientific. This is seen as the more traditional spiritualistic approach, whereas a scientific approach seems to involve carrying a duffel bag around full of expensive equipment that makes beeping sounds and flashing lights and voice recorders and all the rest of it. And I think it's interesting to show how these ideas have shifted, and who knows, maybe they'll shift back the other way. And the other thing I wanted to highlight from that sentence is how they described Harbour 6 in the morning as being the unconventional hour. And I don't know if Harbour 6 in the morning is unconventional because it's very early, because that's when most of us still haven't had our first coffee of the day, never mind being out and about ghost hunting, or if it's unconventional because ghosts are supposed to be acting in the dark in the nighttime. Or maybe it's unconventional just because they were expecting the ghost at seven o'clock. As mentioned, this ghost was punctual, seven o'clock, so maybe just the fact that it piped up half an hour early was unconventional for some. Whatever was unconventional about it, it was half past six in the morning, and the scientific investigators who had conceived of this method of communicating with the spirit were there conversing with it, talking away, and they noticed that these taps always came from the same place on the same wall, and as such, curious statements were thus obtained. And in one case, when a lady, a lady that the original author of this report knew personally and who they could vouch for, but they chose not to name, when that lady was the interviewer, and by interviewer they mean that lady was the person shouting out these questions into an empty room, some assertions made to her, and by assertions made to her, this means the responses that she had from the, what they assumed to be a ghost in reply to her questions. So some assertions made to her were quite extraordinary in correctness, containing, as they did, information known to no one else in the town or district. And this means the ghost, it would appear, was knowledgeable about things no local would have any knowledge about. On the other hand, they say, it does not seem as if anything new or interesting was imparted to anybody, which is one heck of a put-down for a ghost, isn't it? It's making the effort to communicate with us from the afterlife, but it just wasn't interesting. And those suspicious, scientifically-minded investigators believed that the answers to the questions in most cases seemed evidently framed to suit preconceived ideas in the listener's mind. That's the scientific investigator speaking there, isn't it? These answers were conceived, they were framed to suit preconceived ideas in the listener's mind and the killer blow as it were that came from the skeptical side of the argument to to try and disprove this mystery is that 
however impressive at the moment, however impressive these communications were at the time, the statements, when repeated, certainly sounded most vague and unconvincing except in the one instance referred to. So not only was this ghost boring, as it were, but it's also very vague in its answers, and on the one occasion where it does get something quite impressively right, if you were to ask a random person on the street the same set of questions, the law of averages suggests that they too would also hit the nail on the head at least once, if not more than once. Maybe this ghost is actually below average in the questions it gets correct. So the result was that both sides had what they thought was a strong argument. On the one hand, as boring as they might be, the messages were all factually correct and the ghost did appear to be very well-travelled and very knowledgeable. And new things, new information that the average person in Pembrokeshire, or this part of Pembrokeshire at the time, might not necessarily know. On the other hand, they were so vague that sceptically minded were not particularly convinced. And if I was going to play devil's advocate, and I am going to play devil's advocate, you might expect a little vagueness when somebody is communicating with taps and knocks. They are effectively using a form of communication that is more limited than, than Morse codes say. There is very little nuance in a, a tapping sound. So it's not the easiest way to communicate. And if indeed ghosts do exist, and if indeed they are trying to communicate with us using a system of tapping sounds, it could be an incredibly difficult thing to do. Maybe it's not as easy for them to just tap the desk like I can do right now. Maybe it takes a lot of effort. Maybe they are over there on the other side right now, turning red in the face, using every muscle in their body. If Well, assuming they have bodies, that is. But either way, if they have bodies or not, they could be really straining just to send a single tap. So maybe it's a little bit unfair to expect them to start tapping out romantic poetry, say, or some Shakespearean sonnets. But anyway, that's enough devil's advocate. And let's move on to what I think is possibly the most important line in the original narrator's report of this case, because they rather boldly nail their colours to the mast, as it were, with this statement. And they claim that the knocks and rappings were in themselves absolutely genuine and produced by some supernormal means. This cannot be doubted. Which is quite a statement. They cannot be doubted. I think we know exactly which side of the argument this narrator is on. And they add that anyone who has ever had any experience of table turning will realise that the genuineness of manifestation is quite compatible with the extreme futility of the information usually conveyed in such ways and will recognise that the noises and rappings in the house at St. Govan's evidently belonged to the same class of phenomena. And that's another sentence that, besides being a bit of a mouthful, also needs a little bit of unpacking. And while I won't go into a full description of table turning right now, I imagine a lot of people listening have heard of table turning or table tipping before. But as the name suggests, it's when a table is turned supposedly by some kind of supernatural force, by a spirit who tilts the table in response to questions, and which our narrator suggests is genuine phenomena, even though some of the information gained from it might not necessarily be of much use. And to continue, 
manifestations of such a vehement and insistent order must surely have had their origin in some unknown psychic disturbance, some mysterious jarring sufficient to set quivering the veil between things seen and unseen. Which, again, is a bit of a mouthful and is a rather flowery way of saying that these manifestations, the fact that they happen, means that they can be traced back to some kind of psychic disturbance. The tables would not be tipping, the bed would not be rocking against the wall had it not been the scene of some psychic disturbance. And this leads up to the main point our narrator is trying to make. And to quote, and this is the last bit of flowery dialogue that I need to quote from them, but to quote, they say that, in this and similar cases, it has always seemed that trying, however vainly, to find a reason for these disturbances is very much more interesting than heeding or dwelling long on the messages which rewards the efforts of the investigator. So what they mean by that is, it's not the messages that the spirits are sending us that is interesting. What's interesting is the fact that they are communicating with us regardless. They could be sending us absolute gibberish. It's the fact that they are communicating that is interesting. Or to put it another way, it's the messenger that's important, not the message itself. And to continue, for if indeed spirits are responsible for the replies to our questions, they seem only too often to belong to that lying, and lying is in inverted commas here, that lying class with whom it is certainly best to avoid dealings. So what they're saying with that last bit there is that even if we could make sense of these messages, they aren't to be trusted. They are, or they could well be, literally liars. They could be lying, according to our narrator. And maybe, and I'm just thinking aloud here, but maybe this goes back to the idea that spirits are seen as being evil, spirits are seen as being demonic by some, and as such we should not believe the tongue of the deceiver. And this reinforces the argument that what's important is simply the fact that you are receiving communication and not the words themselves. And just to be clear, I might be stating the obvious here, but this is the view of a researcher 100 years ago. It's not my personal view. I imagine it's not a view shared by many people listening to this podcast. But nevertheless, it is a view worthy of consideration, because what they're saying is that if no explanation can be found, if no natural explanation can be found, as in this particular case, we can still be amazed at the fact that it simply was. That bed was banging on its own. We have no idea why. We might never know why. But if whatever was taking place was not natural, maybe that does make it supernatural. And while that brings us to the end of the details of this account and our narrator's personal views... Before we wrap up this episode, we can take a quick look at what was recorded about the history of the property, which might offer some clues as to the events that took place inside. And we are told that, in regard to the haunted house of St. Govans, its history and associations may have something to do with the manifestations. For it's not uncommon for old houses which have known some strange happenings within their walls to be haunted in such a way. 
and this particular habitation of most unobtrusive and unghostlike aspect. We're going back to the start of this episode where the property was described as being very unghostly. It was very unspooky. This was not a spooky house. It was most unobtrusive and unghostlike. But it was a place of some antiquity, and for many years it was used as a bank. And long before that, it was an inn. And as regular listeners will know, pubs and inns are great places to be haunted. And as our narrator tells us, surely a ghost was ever a necessary appurtenance to every respectable inn of the golden days. And I would add to that, not just the golden days anymore. A ghost is a necessary ingredient in any pub and inn today. But back to this one, and sadly, no authentic tale or legend remains to connect those times with the present. So despite being a house with an interesting past, it was a bank, it was a pub, it surely had a ghost, they were unable to find any accounts of a haunting in that building when it was a bank, when it was a pub, when it was anything. There was nothing before these events. And that is pretty much where the case was closed. And to wrap up this investigation and this episode, the haunting eventually fizzled out on its own. And we are told that its noisy demonstrations daily became less, like a ghost that was running out of power. And as the ghost's power waned, so public interest waned with it, and no definite result was obtained by any of the investigators, scientific or otherwise. The subject, after forming for several weeks a sort of conversational bone of contention between sceptics and believers, which is a nice way of saying after weeks and weeks of sceptics and believers being at each other's throats about what was going on in this house, the haunting itself shared at last the fate of such abnormal topics and died a natural death, which I think is a great way of wrapping up a ghost story that just fizzled out without coming to any definite conclusion. It just died a natural death. And this podcast is about to do the same, because it's time for this episode to die a natural death. And on that rather fatalistic note, so ends another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, please consider hitting the subscribe button. And if you really enjoyed it, you can support the podcast by treating me to a coffee or picking up some merchandise from my website or just leaving a nice review or rating. If you'd like more Ghosts and Folklore, you can follow me on social media. And as well as this podcast, I've written a number of books about similar weird and wonderful subjects which are available from all good bookshops offline and on. And again, you can find a full list of those books on my website. All of which just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And remember... Whatever your personal views are on this case. If you're a sceptic who thinks it's all a load of rubbish. If you're a true believer who thinks that banging bed was clear evidence of life after death. It doesn't matter either way. If you're a sceptic, if you're a believer, if you're a scientist, if you're a lion tamer. As long as you're doing what you enjoy doing, nothing else matters. To, to accidentally quote Metallica there, which is not how I planned on ending this episode. But just get out there and enjoy yourselves. And never care for what they do, and never care for what they know. 
Until next time, Nosta! Thank you.